This information is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as legal or tax advice. Please consult your attorney or accountant to discuss your particular business situation. SBA's participation in this presentation is not an endorsement of the views, opinions, products, or services of any of the participants, persons, or entities. All SBA programs and services are extended to the public on a non-discriminatory basis. This information is as current as May 18, 2020. Aloha, I'm Evan Leong from Brain Gain Hawaii, and welcome to today's Save Hawaii Jobs and Businesses webinar for May 18, 2020. This is the 13th webinar in our series. If this is new for you, we have a resource folder with updated memos and previous webinar videos on YouTube. Please make sure you review those documents before asking a question since most of the answers are in those documents. Please let me introduce our team for today. Jane Sawyer is the Hawaii District Director for the SBA and our champion for Hawaii small businesses. Darren Leong is a specialist in employment law from the law office of Darren R. Leong. Stacy Katakura is the CEO of Accumulus, which is an outsourced CFO and accounting firm. Jeff Harris is a specialist in employment law and a senior name partner at the Torkelson Law Firm. Buddy Leong is an analyst here at Brain Gain Hawaii. He handles our communications, backend, and the chat box. Coco Leong is our editor at Brain Gain in charge of content, YouTube channel, and podcast. Um, questions today will be taken in the Q&A module only. If you post your question in the chat box, Buddy will ask you to put it into the Q&A box. Um, when you see questions in the Q&A module that uh, relate to you, and that's the ones that you are interested in as well, please upvote them. And that's how our panelists will be taking the questions later in the webinar today. Please note, this is a fully volunteer effort. This team has personally answered hundreds of questions, email threads, and has donated hundreds of billable hours, um, just trying to help. And the legal disclaimer is, this information is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as legal or tax advice. Please consult your attorney or accountant to discuss your particular business situation. SBA's participation in this presentation is not an endorsement of the views, opinions, products, or services of any of the participants, persons, or entities. All SBA programs and services are extended to the public on a non-discriminatory basis. This information is current as of today, May 18, 2020. So let's start with Jane Sawyer. Thank you. Aloha, everybody, and thanks for joining us today. Um, it should be an interesting topic because just last, the end of last week on uh, Friday afternoon, SBA and Treasury released the Paycheck Protection Plan loan forgiveness application. This has been a long time in the making and uh, greatly anticipated. Uh, so if you've already got your PPP funds and you're looking at what does it really mean and how do I maximize my forgiveness, um, we're going to talk a little bit about that today. The application had some surprises. Um, we expect to see some refinements on the information as we go along. And there still is PP money PPP money available in round two. So um, if you know somebody who hasn't yet applied, um, you can send them to their local bank or take a look online and see if they're ready to fill out an application. The process is pretty simple. Figuring out this piece may be a little bit more difficult. Um, the form itself you can find online, sba.gov or go to treasury and pull down the application form. It is daunting because it has about 11 pages, but it kind of goes through step-by-step step to help you calculate the payroll cost using an alternative payroll covered period that aligns with your regular 
payroll cycles. Um, you're going to need to have ready as you go through this, um, perhaps the application or a sample or a copy of the application that you used before, your loan numbers and things like that. It's just going to make it a lot easier if you're prepared to go through this. The application also gives you some flexibility to include eligible payroll and non-payroll expenses paid or incurred during the eight-week period after you got your PPP loan. Gives you instructions on how to perform the calculations required to confirm your eligibility for loan forgiveness. Um, and, well, it has the implementation of some statutory exemption from loan forgiveness reduction based on rehiring by the 30th. So a number of different things. As I said, we are expecting refinements. The Our experts are going to help you through with some of the definitions today. And um, we'll be here to help uh, as we go through uh, the next couple of weeks uh, for the continued uh, covered periods. So through June 30th. So thanks for that. And let's go, uh, I guess it's to Darren. Thank you, Jane. Um, hi, everyone. Happy Monday. Um, so logistically, uh, I'm going to cover um, first quickly city and county grants, and then I'm going to cover uh, how the application uh, applies to the first three rules in our forgiveness memo. Um, Jeff is going to cover rules number four and five as they relate to the application, which is the FTE reduction and the uh, individual salary uh, reduction. Uh, and then Stacy is going to walk through the application itself, line by line. And then after that, we intend to take Q&A uh, as long as it's productive. Um, today, uh, I'll, I will warn you, today is going to be technical and math nerdy. So uh, if you don't have a headache by the end, that means you went to MIT or Iolani, and uh, otherwise, bear with us. Okay, um, city and county grants went live about an, uh, two hours ago, I think. This is for Oahu, uh, city and county of Honolulu. Um, this was what was brought to our attention at the end of the last uh, webinar. It is a $10,000 grant. Uh, the main qualifications are, and, and I apologize, I'm the one who drafted the update that has the typo in it. Um, it is uh, gross revenue under $1 million uh, per year and uh, 30 or fewer employees. Those are the, the main criteria. The other is essentially having a, a physical storefront location or a physical location. So, um, I won't go too deeply into it um, other than to say that it's actually a, uh, a fairly simple and um, elegantly designed application that runs through uh, one of four different credit unions. And you can find it at oneoahu.org. That's O-N-E-Oahu.org slash small dash business. Um, uh, so that, and sorry, neighbor island folks, it's uh, in a Wahoo program. Okay, so uh, the application form, um, we uh, 
we actually think it, it, it fits pretty nicely in with the forgiveness memo that we published. And so we've updated that forgiveness memo and that version is posted on the Google Drive. Uh, the major sort of right up front question is the eight week period um, that uh, previously we'd understood the eight week forgiveness period to be eight weeks from the uh, date of disbursement of the loan. Uh, the application form gives a, a second um, option that, that certain employers can use. So uh, for employers with a bi-weekly or weekly payroll, and um, sorry, you bi-monthly people, uh, it would not apply. So it's bi-weekly or weekly payrolls um, can use what's called an alternative payroll covered period. And what that does is it shifts the eight week period from the disbursement date. Um, it shifts the start to the beginning of the next full payroll period. So the start of the payroll period um, that happens after disbursement, if you are on a biweekly or a weekly payroll, you can have your eight weeks start there. And um, that lines up your payroll nicely over that eight weeks. So it's a, a clean um, eight week that lines up with your payroll. Uh, if you are on a bi-monthly, the way that it's currently drafted is uh, potentially going to cause you to, to use partial periods. And um, uh, as drafted, the, the application requires you to use the disbursement date as the start of your eight weeks. Okay. Um, the next sort of question is uh, um, what you're allowed to include um, as uh, as forgivable expenses. We've, we've talked extensively in the past about payroll costs and non-payroll costs. Um, those are still the same, um, the same, uh, I guess, um, categories. Payroll costs includes salary, gross wages, tips, gross commissions, uh, and paid leave, which includes vacation, family, family medical, and sick leave. Um, excluding uh, one, excluding paid leave that's reimbursed and taken under the FFCRA. Um, uh, payroll costs also includes health insurance, uh, retirement contributions, state and local taxes. And then non-payroll costs, which is the 25, up to 25% of your um, forgivable expenses. Non-payroll costs includes business mortgage interest payments, business rent or lease payments, uh, and business utility payments. The interesting one here in the application is for uh, business mortgage interest payments and business rent or lease payments, uh, it's not just um, for, uh, for example, rent or lease of, of real property. It also includes personal property. Uh, and so we uh, went back and forth on what that means. Uh, what we think it means is that um, personal property would include things like uh, lease on the copy machine, um, potentially cars, business, uh, business vehicles, um, and office furniture would be the three that most um, readily come to mind. So that was something unexpected that we had not seen. Uh, 
the application attempts to uh, answer the the question that we've been talking about for week after week of costs incurred and payments made um, for and, and it 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 answers the question 80% of the way all right so uh, for payroll costs the um, the payroll costs that count during the eight week either covered period or eight week alternative payroll covered period um, are those payroll costs uh, clearly ones that are uh, incurred within that eight week period and either paid in that eight week period or paid on the next payroll date after the end of the eight week period those all clearly count the piece that uh, we've been debating and think that the application form is uh, leaves ambiguity on is uh, whether payroll costs that are paid uh, during the eight week period, but incurred prior to the eight week period, whether those count. And the reason why uh, we're arguing back and forth is because there's uh, about three different spots on the application form. Two of them say one thing and we think the third says another. So on, uh, yeah, so uh, we think the answer is currently unclear on whether, for example, um, hours that are worked before the eight week period, but paid during the eight week period, whether that counts, okay? So that is payroll costs. Um, for non-payroll costs, uh, this one is much clearer, which is it is uh, for non-payroll costs, uh, rent, lease, utility, etc., that are either paid or incurred uh, within the eight-week period. And if it's incurred within the eight-week period, as long as it's paid by the next regular billing date, that qualifies. What that means, uh, we think, is that back rent back lease payments uh, and prepayment of rent um, and lease payments, we think that that counts. Uh, there, is, there is an exclusion for uh, business mortgage interest payments. There is no, pre, no prepayment allowed for business mortgage interest payments, okay? So uh, for rent and lease, uh, we believe there's prepayment and uh, payment in arrears for both of those. Um, for business mortgage interest payments, there is no prepayment allowed. Um, and then utility payments, uh, uh, paying retroactive or paying utility payments that are past due, paying it within the eight-week period would be allowed as a forgivable cost. Um, that was a bit of a mouthful. Uh, the third rule, um, is uh, is the same as we've been stating it, which is that uh, the application form limits the forgiveness amount to uh, a maximum of 25% uh, non-payroll costs. So there's a, a calculation uh, in the application form um, that uh, that essentially limits the amount of forgiveness to uh, 25% non-payroll costs and 
and then you have to have at least 75% payroll cost. Um, okay, that was a mouthful and I'm sure I created more questions than answered them, but uh, we'll put it to Jeff um, to answer uh, or explain the rules with respect to FTE reductions and also the rules with respect to uh, individual salary wage reductions. Go ahead, Jeff. Thank you, dear. So we've, we've got a handle on what are the allowable payroll and non-payroll expenses. We spent all those. We've got a number there that we hope is completely forgivable. Now we look at the part of the statute and the part of the, the interim final regulations and Q&As and the part of this application, particularly pages seven and eight, that talk about whether or not and to what extent the entire amount of the loan that we spent on allowable costs is going to be forgiven. And the, the first area that there's some clarification, the best clarification, is what's a full-time employee equivalent? Well, we know that now, and it's nothing any of us ever speculated, okay? So we know the rule that you, if you don't reduce the average full-time employee to lower than either you had on February 15, 2019 to June 30, 2019, or January 1, 2020 to 229, we, we know that if you kept the average full-time employee equivalents at at the same as those comparable periods, that you're not gonna have a reduction. But everybody's been asking, and we've been speculating, well, what's a full-time equivalent? Well, we know now. What the, what the application says is you count the average full-time equivalent employee by averaging hours worked without counting any hours worked over 40 uh, to, to determine how many full-time equivalents there are. So if you have three guys that work, three employees that work 55 hours, you throw 45, 40 hours of their 55 hours into the, into the bucket. And if you have two guys that work 20 hours, you throw their hours into the bucket. And then it's, you divide that by five to get the average hours work. That's, that's one way of doing it. The other alternative way that the application allows you to do it is count anybody that worked 40 hours as a one and anybody that worked under 40 hours as a 0.5. And so the, the, those two options of how you calculate full-time employee really give you, give those people who have a lot of people that work under 20 hours a week an option to use the second formula the formula that gives you 0.5 for anybody that works under 40. And, and you have something to work with there. Um, it's, it's, it's what we've been looking for. And now, now you know what you need to maintain to get the full, full forgiveness for maintaining full-time employees. There's also another exception that says you, you, the SBA won't reduce forgiveness if any reduction you made between February 15th and April 26th is restored by June 30th, or you restore by the end of the covered period the full-time employee equivalents that you had on January 1st. 
So it's, it's possible that you can avoid any full-time reduction for not maintaining full-time forgiveness if you get back up to your full-time count by June 30th or full-time count for February 15th to February, April 26th or full-time count uh, by the end of the covered period. So, so, and that's spelled out not really much better than I just said, frankly, in the application, but it's there. It's on pages seven and eight of the application. The other even more interesting part of the full-time forgiveness, uh, full-time employee equivalent forgiveness rules is they're not going to reduce or they're, they're not going to reduce your forgiveness for those employees who reject rehire. If you don't, if you don't re-employ, re-employ someone else to replace them, if they're fired for claw, for cause, if they voluntarily resign or they, if they requested reduced hours. So, we we received a number of questions over the last couple of weeks about what if somebody just doesn't come back to work? Well, we said, give them a written offer and, and document that they didn't come back. And then you don't have to go, you don't have to run and try and replace them to avoid having your, your forgiveness reduced on the fact that you've got one less full-time equivalent employee. Same for resignation, get a written resignation. Same for hours reduction, get a written written hours reduction, uh, written request to reduce hours. So there's there's some more guidance on p- pages seven to eight of the application and the corresponding um, uh, schedules later on full, when you can get full-time employee equivalent uh, forgiveness and the exceptions to avoid having a reduction there. The, the other part of the uh, do you have anything to add on the full-time employee forgiveness section before I move on, Darren? No, go ahead. Okay. Uh, the, the the next forgiveness is the salary wage forgiveness section. And, and of course, if you don't reduce employees' average weekly salary or wage to lower than 75% of average, average weekly salary or wage paid during January 1st, 2020 to March 31st, 2020, during the covered period, then then you get full forgiveness and, and no reduction for reduction. But no, there's a new word in there that we haven't been talking about before, and that's the employee's average weekly salary or wage to lower than 75%. So that the application form appears to require you to to average average out the employee wage or salary for each week of the eight week period and then and then use that for a base to compare against the same same kind of figure and for the january 1st 2020 to march 31st 2020 period the, the if if you don't to, to the extent that you don't meet the 75 percent average weekly salary or wage pay it appears that the amount of your loan forgiveness will be re- reduced by the amount of dollars that you don't meet that 75%. The, the, the other, other interesting exception on the salary wage forgiveness front that we want to mention is you're not going to have your forgiveness reduced if you increase the employee's 
average weekly salary or wage on June 30th to the average weekly salary or wage on February 15th. So if, if you don't pay, if you pay them half time or reduced hours, but on, on or about June, well, on June 30th, you increase their salary or wage to the, the average salary or wage that there was that you had them at back from January 1st, 2020 to March 31, uh, excuse me, had them on, on February 15th, then, then the, the reduction of forgiveness for the salary, salary wage component is eliminated. That's really all I have on the, on the FTE and salary wage forgiveness, Darren. Yeah, I would just um, add a couple of points, which is for both the FTE calculation for the reduction and also the salary wage reduction, the, the statute referred to monthly, um, monthly averages, but the application form uses a weekly average. Uh, so uh, we're going with the weekly average. Uh, it's simpler because eight weeks divides up evenly uh, by week, but it does not divide up evenly by month. Um, so just know that, that that's there. And then on the, the salary wage deduction, I would uh, just add that if it's, for example, for an hourly employee, the calculation is going to end up accounting for essentially the difference in the amount of, of average pay per week earned over the eight-week period. So, uh, for example, if um, on uh, if in the first quarter of 2020, um, the average weekly wage of a worker was $100, and then um, it gets reduced and, and say it's $50 instead of $100 over the eight-week period, then what you're comparing is the $75, which is 75% of 100 um, to the $50 that was actually paid um, over the eight-week period. So that $25 difference between 75 and 50, and then you're going to take that amount prorated over the, over the eight weeks, okay? Um, One other point there, Darren. The, the two forgiveness rules work a little bit together in tandem because those those employees that were working 55 hours in the first quarter and and only accounted for 40 40 hours under the 8 weeks they may their wages may go down a bit but they're not going to go down the whole way to 75 so so they those two applications sort of work together yeah um uh one one other thing we did, and again, I, I we're trying to keep this sort of clear and organized. Think of the FTE reduction separately from the salary wage individual employee reduction. Okay, um, what we did in our memo because these are these are rules four and five in in the memo, um, and it's a, a little easier to see it on paper sometimes. Uh, is we reverse the two, and the reason is that um, we notice in the application form that the FTE reduction, which is, for example, 
uh, if you know your FTE count versus the reference period is 90 employees and FTEs instead of 100, so it's 90%. That 90% is applied um, after any reduction in the uh, salary, uh, the salary individual pay reduction. So that's why we reversed rules four and five because you need to do the individual employee salary reduction calculation first. And then once you, once you get that number um, and it's applied to however much forgiveness gets reduced, then you apply the FTE reduction percentage. Um, I, I'd also point out that uh, in keeping these two concepts separate, the FTE reduction and the salary individual employee reduction, um, it helps to keep it separate because they have different reference periods. So the FTE reference period that you can choose is either February 15th to June 30th of 2019 or the first two months of 2020. Um, and for those of you who are referring to older memos, uh, I did say February 15th to June 30th, not June 20th. So the application form has June 30th in there. So those two reference periods for FTE counts, uh, but for the individual employee salary wage reduction, that one looks at the first quarter of 2020. Okay, so they're different look back periods. Um, Okay, so let's pass it to Stacy, who I think, uh, for those of you on, uh, on, on screens, she's going to share her uh, screen so you can see the application form, and then she'll walk through it line by line to, to try and put into perspective uh, what Jeff and I at least attempted to, to lay out. Can everyone see my, can you guys see my screen? Yes. Good. Um, so I, I just took out the, of the 11 pages, I took out the, uh, the relevant um, pages of the application form itself. Um, just wanted to kind of go through step by step, um, not too much detail. The top of the, the first page of the form is just kind of gathering your, your information about your business, PPP loan number for the SBA. In the event that your, your lender has a different loan number, you put it there. Uh, the loan amount, the disbursement date, which would be the start of your eight-week period. Um, employees at the time of loan application, which was on your loan application itself. Um, employees at the time of forgiveness application. Um, I don't know why they, they're asking for these, these numbers because they really have no relevance in, in the other computations. I think they're just gathering information. Um, to the extent that you received an idle advance, the amount is, uh, you, you put it there. Um, presumably because that might, that may or may, may not affect the, your forgiveness amount. Hey, Stacy, uh, can you yeah. go um, larger on the, the plus sign at the top? So take, make it 100. Yeah, try that. Thanks. Um, okay. Um, where was I? So idle advance amount, idle application number. Um, so if you have um, applied for an idle loan um, and or have received an idle uh, loan, um, Proceeds, uh, presumably some of that may or may not have been refinanced with your PPP loan proceeds. I think they, they want to just cross-reference that. <clears throat> then you check the payroll schedule weekly, bi-weekly, twice a month, uh, which a lot of uh, people, I guess, refer to as semi-monthly. Um, Darren, I think, re referred to it as 
bi-monthly uh, earlier in the in, in his um, presentation. So I think we've got some questions about that. But twice a month would be semi-monthly. Um, <laughs> monthly or other. Um, the covered period would be uh, the date um, that you received your loan uh, disbursement, um, ending eight weeks after that or 56 days after that. Uh, there are alternative payroll cover period, uh, which Darren kind of went over, um, the, which would be the beginning of the start of your either weekly or biweekly um, pay period. Um, if you are going to um, opt to do that, um, if you are either a biweekly or weekly uh, employer. Um, and just note that the alternative payroll covered period only applies to your payroll, um, not your covered period, which um, would would um, be which would apply to your other non-payroll costs, um, and then this again, we want to be very careful. If the if the borrower received the PPP loan in excess of two million dollars, check here. You do not want to check that box if you did not um, receive a PPP loan in excess of two million dollars. Um, I think this is probably this, the flag that um, that you your your loan will, will or will not be audited or reviewed by the SPA. Um, so I, the, the next part of the application is a, the forgiveness amount calculation, and I, it refers to the um, two other uh, schedules within the application itself, um, Schedule A and um, the Schedule A worksheet. So I'm going to start at the, at the, uh, the last, the Schedule A worksheet, because you need to fill this out before you fill out the rest of the, the application. Um, <clears throat> so the next page, the Schedule A worksheet. Um, Table one is uh, you're listing any of your employees' names, uh, employee identifier, which is the last four digits of the social security number, um, cash compensation that was that you paid during the covered period um, for employees uh, earning less than uh, $100,000 annualized um, during, uh, during the covered period. Uh, so this amount should not exceed 15385 um, the average FTE, um, and then uh, the, I'm not going to go through that in, uh, too much because I, I think um, both Darren and Jeff went over that pretty thoroughly. And the, uh, you have to calculate the uh, salary hourly wage, wage reduction um, for each of your employees. If you have more than the number of lines on this, you can use a different um, form. Um, and then there's a the FTE reduction exception. Um, so if you have an exception because of the, um, the if you meet one of the safe harbors, uh, safe harbor <coughs> um, requirements, you can, you would enter it here. Um, so the difference between the first table one and table two is uh, table two, you list all of the employees that make an, uh, more than $100,000. Um, I think the, the main difference is that they wouldn't be um, the salary hourly uh, wage reduction wouldn't apply to them. Um, we think that there was a um, likely a mistake and that there the FTE uh, reduction ex exception that you see up here should probably be in the the second table below um, because I don't believe that um, those the, the people earning over $100,000 are exempt from the FTE count. Um, uh, if you kind of, if you go down a little bit more on the uh, Schedule A, the reduction um, safe harbor, this is just kind of um, 
calculating, you know, what your, your, if you, if you did reduce um, the, your FTEs during the period, whether or not you meet the safe harbor. Um, hey, Stacey, I can I, can I just interject there before you go on to the safe harbor? Mm -hmm. So for the, the two, um, the two charts or tables, I guess, there's an explicit instruction not to include owners or owner employees there. Um, and uh, therefore, we think that on the, uh, on the line that asks what your FTE count is in the look back reference period, that those owners uh, should also be excluded there too, so that you don't um, have a, a reduction showing that didn't actually happen. Thank you, yeah, I forgot to um, point that out. Um, I didn't want to go into too much. I, I know you guys both went over the safe harbors. So I didn't want to go into too much. I think the only thing I wanted to point out in addition to um, is that whatever FTE, uh, whatever method that you're using to calculate your FTE in the look back period, whether it's the 40 hours a week or the um, basically the headcount where you uh, assign half a FTE to anyone working under 40 hours a week, you should you should be consistent in the um, the method um, in both both the look back period and the um, your eight week period. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out here is on step four, um, it asks you to enter the borrower's total FTE as of June 30th. Um, so I thought it was interesting because, um, you know, I, I it, previously we were under the impression that you were uh, given, it, you're, you're qualified for, the safe, qualified for the safe harbor to the extent that you bring back your employees uh, before June 30th um, and possibly even during the, your eight week forgiveness period. Um, but uh, and you could, I mean, if you're, to the extent your, your forgiveness period um, ends before June 30th, you would just need to keep them on um, through your eight weeks um, and not through June 30th. But it looks, uh, it appears to, because they have, uh, they're asking for your FTE as of June 30th, it, it appears that you would need to keep them on through June 30th. Um, so... Once you've um, once you've completed Schedule A worksheet, you can complete go back to completing Schedule A. So I'm going to go to that next. Um, so Schedule A, um, enter line one is enter cash compensation box one from this uh, Schedule A worksheet. So these this is your cash compensation paid or incurred um, for employees earning less than a hundred thousand um, dollars. The average FTE um, and then salary hourly wage reduction um, on line three. The next portion of the, uh, the worksheet is uh, compensation and FTE for all employees that are earning greater than $100,000. Um, and then non-cash compensation payroll costs during the covered period, which um, any amount paid for employer contributions for employee health insurance. Um, I, I was, and the total uh, amount for employer contributions to employee retirement plans. Um, so I just wanted to point out here that it, uh, I think this is the first time I've seen the employer contributions uh, brought up, but it, so presumably if your employee is, um, is con contributing to part of their health insurance, you would um, exclude that. 
Um, and then on line eight, the total amount paid for state and local taxes on employees' compensation, so, so that would be SUDA. Uh, and then the, the next line, uh, the next line, line nine, is amount paid to owner employees, self-employed individuals, and general partners. Um, and again, this amount is not included to, to what Darren said, this amount is not included in the Schedule A worksheet, uh, table one or two. Um, so I think this goes back to, kind of wanted to reiterate that uh, your owner employees, self-employed individuals and general partners uh, are excluded from the calculations up above, including the amounts uh, for health insurance, um, employee retirement plans and SUDA. Um, so then after you've, you've captured all the information, you total up your payroll costs um, and then do your, your FTE reduction calculation at the bottom. Um, one thing that we wanted to also point out about the application is this, uh, this under this FTE reduction calculation, there's the, it appears that there is another safe harbor that hasn't appeared before. So if you have not reduced the number of employees or the average paid hours of your employees, between January 1 and the end of the covered period, uh, check here and you can skip the rest of the FTE reduction cal calculation. That's, that's something that's, uh, that's new. So that, now that you've, um, we've, you've completed Schedule A, uh, you can go back to the rest of the application itself um, and enter this information again, payroll costs from Schedule A, um, line 10. <coughs> Um, business mortgage interest payments, um, and this is, like Darren said, the instructions for this line is um, you wouldn't include any payments of mortgage interest. Um, the exclusion didn't apply then to the next two lines below, which is business rent or lease payments. Um, and again, this is uh, where we first see the terminology uh, rent on personal, uh, um, rent on real and personal property. Um, meaning that I, I believe, you know, in, in, addition to, in addition to your rent for your office space, um, you can include rent for office machines, copiers, um, postage machines, even vehicle, business vehicle leases. Um, and then finally, uh, business utility payments. Uh, and both of these for rent or lease and business utility payments, um, it would appear to include, you can include back rent and prepayments. Um, as long as um, it, it's within the covered period. <clears throat> um, and then it goes down to uh, the calculation to reduce um, for FTE uh, and salary, hour, salary, <laughs> salary hourly wage reductions. Um, you calculate your potential forgiveness amount and enter the total at the bottom. <clears throat> so did you guys have anything uh, you wanted to add? Um, no, but that's because I was reading the questions. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, okay. Do you want to go to, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm just sort of scrolling through the questions and there's just a lot of good questions. Uh, I mean, we could start at the top. Um, uh, I guess this, this is a lot to swallow and as it's coming out of our mouths, um, I'm sort of imagining the, uh, imagining the um, intake into everyone listening. And so uh, if I put it into a framework, essentially um, 
we're talking about the amount of payroll costs that that count and the amount of non-payroll costs that potentially count for uh, for forgiveness and that is the payroll costs and non-payroll costs that get stuffed into the eight week either covered period or alternative payroll covered period and then from that amount um, there are three types of reductions that possibly apply. So that's, I think, the framework where you look at it. You, you get the total amount spent on payroll costs, non-payroll costs uh, in that eight weeks with all the you know, literal, little rules that go along with it. And then there are three ways in which it gets knocked down. The first one is the 75-25% rule which is that um, no more than 25% of the non-payroll costs uh, can, can go toward forgiveness. Um, and if you're above 25% there, you're going to get knocked down. The second way you would get knocked down on the amount of forgiveness is under the FTE reduction, which as Jeff had talked about, has a whole bunch of ways in which to escape that FTE reduction, whether it's picking the two different reference periods, whether it's picking the calculation of what an F FTE is that is more favorable, uh, whether it's one of the FTE safe harbors, whether it's because the FTEs uh, were reduced because someone quit or was fired for cause. Like, There's a whole bunch of, of ways in which you can escape that one. And then the third way in which your loan forgiveness amount gets knocked down is the individual employee pay reduction, which is if the pay gets reduced below um, 75% uh, compared to uh, the first three, uh, three months of this year uh, for those employees who are, are paid under uh, 100 grand um, and not subject to a safe harbor, then that's an, another way in which they get knocked down. So I, I would say keep that general framework in mind. And then as you're working through each one of those pieces, then you can get really deep into the weeds on uh, each one of those particular pieces. Okay, um, shall we start at the top for questions? Um, I'll take that as a yes. Uh, uh, Rebecca says, can you pay an employee only the last pay period, uh, the full amount? Uh, when, when it says 15,333, I think she's referring to the max amount of 15,385. Is that what it is, Stacey? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes. Uh, which is $100,000 annual salary divided by 52 weeks times eight weeks. So it's, it's, it's that prorated $100,000 pay over the eight weeks, um, which rounded up comes to $15,385. Um, and, uh, and the question is, can you pay that one on the last pay period, even if they weren't on payroll until the last week, because they were working technically during those eight weeks for your company? Um, there's, there's actually several different um, issues in that question. Jeff, you want to tackle that? Uh, sure, you can pay the maximum amount at any time 
during during the period, if it's for a payroll cost, I'd be concerned under the circumstances of that case that the the, the, the payment by, might be looked at as something other than a payroll cost. Um, yeah, uh, not maintaining I, payroll, I guess, is the is the yeah, question. Yeah, yeah, and and to the extent that you bring an owner or someone that's working for another company under your payroll at the last at the at the last week of the payroll it's it it's not technically you can do that but it's whether it's for the purposes of maintaining payroll and, and we there's a number of questions like that in the in the 130 that we have 164 questions that i've basically scrolled through <laughs> okay but yeah but that the short answer is it's got the payments that come out for payroll need to be for payroll and not for owner owner or other reasons. The only real exception to that is there is a one payroll cost that we've seen used quite a bit in in my practices. There there is a, a, a an allowable payroll cost of dismissal payments. So a lot a lot of separation agreements can be can be made but they can only be made out of these these uh allowable payroll costs up to the 15385 yeah okay um next question is uh one that is sort of about what's happening in congress and and with the treasury right now uh which is the status of the PPP extension act which is also showing up in forms in what the House has passed as the HEROES Act and that the Senate is likely to push back on. Uh, but really the question boils down to, uh, is the law going to change? Um, there were a couple of articles over the weekend. Um, I think it originated in the Wall Street Journal, but Market Watch also picked it up. And it suge- those, those news articles suggested that, that the law may change such that the eight week period um, by some action of government at some point in time may be extended beyond eight weeks to something like 16 or 56 weeks or something like that. Um, that, you know, that's dependent on whether Congress passes a law that, that essentially changes the law as it is. And so for those borrowers, um, and on, on this webinar, most are, are deep into their eight-week period, um, it may not be uh, that much help if the law ends up changing. Um, but for those folks who did not expend the full amount of PPP funds and may have some extra, then um, it's, certainly, it's certainly worth watching um, closely what happens in Congress uh, to see if essentially the law gets changed in a manner that allows broader forgiveness over a longer period of time and, and that sort of thing. So, um, okay, uh, where did we go? Next question, um, Stacy, uh, can dental premiums, are, are, are dental premiums health insurance payments essentially or payroll costs? Yes, yes it is. Um, questions kind of some, uh, I guess related will prepayments of health insurance be allowed and that's something that I think the three of us are com- not 
100% certain about because of the term, you know, uh, payroll costs paid and payroll costs um, incurred. Um, yeah. I believe that any payroll costs paid or incurred are limited to the eight weeks. I think Darren started off by saying we're 80% sure <laughs> um, that it would just be limited to the eight weeks, whereas um, non-payroll costs are um, paid or incurred during the eight weeks period. Yeah, let me, let me just go a little bit deeper into why this um, uh, payroll costs that are incurred before the eight-week period, why it, we think it's ambiguous whether those, even if paid within the eight-week period, but why we think it's ambiguous. Um, so on the application form, which is 11 pages, um, there's a apparent conflict between page one page two and page uh, seven. So page one and page seven for payroll costs, both talk about including uh, in the forgivable amounts, payroll costs that are incurred or payroll costs that are paid within the eight week covered period. Uh, and that's page one at the very bottom and page seven under the cash compensation section. And if you took those, those to mean how they're written, then it would mean that it doesn't matter when a payroll cost is incurred. It just matters whether you pay it within the eight-week period. Um, however, in contrast to that, on the second page of the application toward the, the bottom half, where it talks about eligible payroll costs, um, the first sentence right off the bat talks about payroll costs paid and payroll costs incurred, which uh, to us is suggestive that um, it, the payroll cost needs to be both paid and incurred within the eight week period. Um, also the alternative payroll um, covered period is is set up in a way that essentially aligns you to start counting right at the beginning of your eight-week period because it sets your payroll um, uh, your your pay period date up to align and so you know the addition of that alternative payroll covered period seems to suggest that only payroll costs that are incurred during that eight weeks um, will count. So that's a very long way of saying that we think there are um, pieces of the application that are essentially in conflict on that, uh, on that issue. Okay. Um, uh, next one, can we get a list of questions asked today and the responses? I'll leave that to Buddy because uh, I don't actually know the answer to that. Yeah, um, um, there is going to be a recording of the webinar available though. Yeah, uh, I think the question is probably are the, the ones that were answered in writing, they'll be somewhere. Um, uh, okay, so um, Ren has a very good question actually. Uh, his question is, our PPP eight-week period ends before June 30th. So just assume that the, the end date of the eight weeks is June 15th. 
are employers expected to keep active employees on payroll until June 30th paying with non-PPP money? Okay, so if you're not trying for a safe harbor, um, then, then the answer to this one is, is clear. You, you can just you stop at the end of the eight weeks. There's no requirements to keep headcounts or anything beyond that if you are not going for a safe harbor. Um, if you are trying to use, for example, the FTE safe harbor, because you had an FTE reduction um, from the reference period, say it's the first two months of 2020 compared to your eight weeks, you have a reduction from 100 employees to 90 employees, and you'd like to get rid of that and not have it affect your forgiveness amount negatively, then as of June 30th, on that date, the way this application is written, you would need to restore the, the FTE average hours as of June 30th. So um, the, the answer is you need to basically on June 30th have the FTE number um, back up if you are going for that uh, safe harbor. Uh, so on on this FTE um, reduction issue, uh, let me let me try and let me try and frame it yet another way that hopefully um, is you know adds some framework and clarity. Okay, so on the FTE reduction, the question is whether your FTE counts um, are going to knock down your forgiveness amount. Okay, so the first two things I would point out right away, and I, I guess I would do this in, in sequence, is there are two choices you can make that you want to make sure that you make the choice with the more favorable um, period. So the first choice is your reference period to determine FTEs between uh, February 15th, 2019 to June 30th, 2019. You get an average weekly FTE level for that period or the first two months of 2020, um, whichever one has the lower FTE count is the reference period that you want. That's, that's, there's no question about that. The second choice that you have to make, which Jeff mentioned, is uh, which definition of FTE you're using. So are you counting part-timers by their actual um, you know, hours divided by 40? Or are you counting all part-timers as 0.5? And the one uh, that, you know, that sort of, if you keep it in mind, you know, if your average hours are above, are above 20, then that's going to yield the higher FTE count um, than just using 0.5. Or if you're, you have like really part-time workers, then using actual hours, which are averaging less than 20 per week is going to yield you a lower FTE count than if you use 0.5. Um, on this one, it is not super clear which one you should use. You should actually run the calculation because you're running that FTE calculation uh, with that definition for both the reference period and your eight-week period. So depending on what your individual situation looks like, one of those two definitions um, can end up being the more advantageous one, okay? Once you do that, then the, the next two things you would do is, is look at both of the safe harbors available, which is 
that any FTE reduction between February 15th and April 26th, if restored by on June 30th to the February 15th level of FTE, then you're free and clear. And then the second one, which was just added to the application kind of randomly, is uh, the January 1st FTE level, if that's restored by the end of your eight-week covered period. That one also appears to be another way to get out of the FTE completely. And then after you look at both of those, then you make sure that you are excluding anyone who uh, rejected an off a written offer of rehire, was fired for cause, voluntarily resigned, or had voluntarily reduced hours. Okay, so those are all the considerations for that FTE thing. Um, okay, back to Q and A's. Jeff, you want to take the next one? I don't know what it is. Yeah, it's it. Oh, Excel form. I see a, uh, I see a YouTube link. So it probably means that the YouTube link has an Excel form. I'm I'm sure people are going to start publishing these in a variety of places. Um, so we'll, we'll see. But to to Jane's point, I have a feeling that some of this may. Shift change or change, yeah. So I had so. a I had developed an Excel um, forgiveness tracker prior to this. Um, I was I need to still go back and update it with the application that just came out, and we'll probably need to continuously update it as new guidance comes out. Okay, Stacey, you want to take this idle? I see idle, so I'm just gonna. Uh, question for Jane. Um, I think Jane dropped off, but uh, we just got an email last week saying we are eligible for an idle loan. Um, we would like to decline the loan since we have a PPP loan, but received the 10K in um, idle grant money. Um, do you need to accept the loan at 10 at 10,000, or how do we decline? So you you can um, you you don't have to give back the 10K. That's fully forgivable. Um, Subject to the, um, the the terms of various PPP loan forgiveness, uh, you can decline the loan. I'm not exactly sure how to do it, um, but presumably, if you just don't respond to the email, um, you have you do have until I believe the end of this year to accept the loan. So you can just leave it open until then. I don't, I don't think there's any um, there's any harm for doing that. You might want to do that just just because you don't know what's going on, what's going to happen in the next few months. And you can use idle funds for um, for purposes uh, other than the PPP loan purposes as well. So the next one is something that I don't think you, we um, we addressed um, very clearly. Um, there's a the newly required certification that owner employees payroll does not exceed eight weeks worth of 2019 compensation. Um, we are not allowed to pay bonus or hazard pay. How can a two-person S-Corp achieve 75% use of PPP funds on payroll costs, um, assuming health insurance premiums um, are still not allowable use, for, allowable use for owner employees? Should we pay back a portion or all of the PPP loan or wait to see if there are for, further changes to the program rules? So um, that, that is true. So we, uh, that there was a um, clarification that came out in this application that uh, the owner employee compensation cannot be more than what was paid in um, 2019, the average of the 2019 um, payroll. 
Um, so you might, uh, if you're counting on paying yourself more in order to meet the 75%, you might need to um, get creative with the way that you spend your PPP funds or just not spend all of your funds, uh, which would then reduce the 25% the, the of the, the funds spent on non-payroll uses. Yeah, I think, if, I think if the only people are in the business are two owners, then you're going to be capped by 13, wait, by 15,385 per owner period, which means that, which means that you are not going to be able to get forgiveness on your entire loan amount. So the simpler example is um, just a single member LLC. There's only one person. Um, that person is owner. Um, the maximum forgiveness, sorry, let me take a step back. The loan amount maximum for that person based on $100,000, two and a half months pay for loan amount is 20833 The maximum amount that single person can take for forgiveness, however, is a total of 15385 So there will be a difference between uh, what the maximum forgiveness is uh, versus what the loan amount is. And under the current law and the current rules, there's no way around that. And just to reiterate, um, if you paid yourself less than uh, annualized uh, pay of $100,000 last year, you cannot pay yourself more if you are an uh, owner or employee. Yeah. Um, and, mm -hmm. and there's a, a bunch on those rules in the third interim final rule on the uh, Treasury website. Um, okay, uh, Harvey asks, um, can you prepay rent during the eight-week period and claim it as a forgivable cost? Um, and I'll, I'll double-check this, but I think the answer is clearly yes on this one. Stacy, Jeff? Uh, yes, I would, I would agree that um, that's, the language says uh, any costs incurred uh, or payments made that or being the key term there. Yeah, and that's the bottom of page two of, of the uh, application document, which is the instructions um, for the forgiveness calculation form. I can read that. The ineligible non-payroll cost must be paid during the covered period or incurred during the covered period and paid on or before the next regular billing date, even if the billing date is after the covered period. Um, okay. Uh, Jeff, you want to take a few? Oh, uh, I'll read it to you. Steve Markham says, I spend 300 a month to a company that manages my network, um, cloud backup, emails, maintenance. Is this an eligible expense under utilities? I, I believe so, but I'll seek both your input on that i i would disagree i i don't think that's a qualified utility expense because it's it's not uh it's it's a it, in theory it's a um independent contractor um, payment um, yeah a, i i think it's, it's not, so you it's not for distribution of water electricity etc it doesn't appear to me to be for distribution, so it wouldn't be a utility. Um, and then the question uh, possibly is whether it's a lease payment if 
you are like renting some server space or something, but uh, I tend to think that's a hard argument to make. The, the, the counter argument is if you look on the second page of the application and uh, non paywall costs include internet access. Uh, I, I don't know about YouTube, but us old folks need geeks to help us run our internet. And, and uh, so, so, so there is, there is a counter argument there that, you're not just paying for the oceanic line that you're paying for internet internet access and internet access includes the geek to help you run it. Yeah. So that was a three person way of saying we do not have a definitive answer for you yeah. on that one. Um, the next one showed up again. We just answered um, cell phones or just uh, cell phones are definitely uh, utilities payments. Yeah. Um, so we're good there. Uh, is forgiveness 75% of total PPP or 75% on the amount spent uh, in the eight-week period? Uh, clearly the amount spent in the eight-week period. There, there's, some, in there, there's some confusion in the application on one of the, uh, towards the end, there's no limitation on the amount of the loan forgiveness that you can obtain if you satisfy all the tests. There's a suggestion that there, there's an implication later in the application that it's only 75%. That's wrong. That's something that needs to be clarified. Yeah. I mean, I guess the way I would, I would answer this question is well, what, um, the way the application is set up on page three, when you list the payroll costs, which is line one, it's, it's the payroll cost that you spent in that eight weeks. So, yeah. or, or, and what I, I'm using in that eight weeks super loosely because we went into like the hyper specific, you know, analysis of costs incurred and payments made, but the, you know, the, the payroll costs that apply to that eight week period, um, that is what is uh, compared on the 25% rule. So if you look at line 10 of page three of the application document, the the twenty five percent rule is applied to the uh, amount that was spent on payroll costs in that in that eight week period. Um, Stacy, you want to take the next one? So I keep reading con conflicting information. Can an owner of an sub S corp qualify for contributions of health insurance and retirement in addition to their payroll? So it seems that the um, the the form itself just explicitly says employee health insurance and employee retirement plans, not not owner and employee health insurance and re retirement. Um, it's a good question. Uh, how do we calculate FTE for employees not compensated by the hour? I, I assume this means salaried exempt employees. Jeff, you want to take that? The statute the statute defines FTEs by the hour. You define FTEs by the hour, and you then you you uh, 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 analyze their salary under the the salary reduction rule. Uh, uh, I guess the the practical question is: What if you don't keep hours right for that particular employee? You, you because they're you salaried them. exempt. Yeah, I think you ask them. you ask, you make a good faith estimate during both periods. And I think many, many folks on salary are 
going to be considered, you know, 40 hours, uh, unless, unless you have some kind of rule in, in the business or office that, you know, the normal work week is 35 hours or something like that. Um, but for, for most salary, it's probably going to be 40 hours or more. Um, next one is, does this mean healthcare? Uh, I think that was just answered healthcare premium for owner employee, not forgivable. I think Stacy just covered that. Um, for a single person LLC, um, awarded a loan based on net income, but you mentioned that uh, you're allowed gross wages. So, okay, so uh, for a single member LLC, um, I think the issue is whether you're, you're paid uh, essentially off a of net profit. Um, and if the calculation is net profit, then that's what you're using and your maximum is going to be that 15385 You want to add to that, Stacey? The only, yeah, so I, I agree with that. Uh, I think the only, um, this would apply, the gross payroll would apply if you are a single member LLC who has employees, uh, you would include the gross pay of your employees. Yeah, and, and that one I, I'd refer back to uh, interim final rule number three to get real specific about that stuff. Uh, Next question is about transportation costs. So yes, so gas is not, uh, gas for a business vehicle is not for distribution, but it is something that showed up explicitly in the interim final rules. So that's why we say gas is a, um, is a, is a transportation utility. But for everything else, it, it, the rules talk about um, distribution of those items. Uh, Jeff, you want Rick, to take the next one? Rick's question got voted up. Yes, Rick, bonuses are allowable to meet the 75% criteria. As we've explained before, there should be some legitimate business reason for awarding those bonuses so you can explain them clearly to the banker. Want to take the next one? Uh, according to Skeg, seems like employee work for quarter 2019 but not for covered works does not need to be listed does this mean 25 wage reduction rule are not implied to employ well there's going to be a fte reduction if they worked for the first quarter but not for the eight weeks and and their in, entire salary would be or wages would be included unless there was an an exception under that under that safe harbor yeah i guess uh, let, let me take another crack at that one which is um so so to clarify the question separated out between the two different types of reductions one for fte and one for reduction in individual pay on the fte issue then and i assume you mean quarter one 2020 um you're actually the look back period that you're going to use is one of the two that we mentioned, which is February 15 to June 30th, 2019. 
for uh, the first two months of this year, and then whichever one has the lower FTE, then compare it to the FTE in the, in the eight-week period. Um, if that employee voluntarily quit, then that would be uh, grounds to ex essentially exclude them from your FTE reduction calculation. So that is on page eight of the uh, application documents where it says FTE reduction exceptions in bold print. And um, that says uh, that for any um, employees who were offered, uh, written offer for rehire and rejected um, or, or were fired for cause, voluntarily resigned, that sort of thing, you can exclude them. That has to be, though, during the covered period or alternative covered period. So if they, if they quit, say, in March or something, then, you know, they're, and they're in your reference period, they're going to count in your reference period. So, okay. Uh, Stacy, you want to take some? So uh, is CAM a forgivable expense under non-payroll costs? And we believe that because it's covered under a lease agreement, that it is considered rent. Yeah, as long uh, as the lease agreement was in place as of February 15th. Uh, 2020. Next one, are parking costs covered by the utility payments? Do they count as transportation? And that, um, I, I, that's, I, that there's no guidance on that. I'm not sure. I, I think it seems like everything else uh, that's considered a utility is distribution of utilities with the exception of uh, gas used on a company vehicle. Um, so it's not clear that parking would or would not be included. Yeah, I think that's a close call. Um, yeah, four part-time workers working 15 hours each, 60, 60 hours total, would that be, uh, um, that be it? Sorry, <laughs> um, I don't know where that went, but. Uh, what, so, what FTE, what, what is the FTE calculation for that is the question. So I think you can look at that um, in, in one of two ways, whichever um, you would prefer. Um, it would either be, uh, because the, the definition is uh, 40 hours a week, that would either be one and a half um, FTE for the 60 hours, or you can opt to um, the simplified method, which would be assign a half FTE for each employee working less than 40 hours. So that would um, probably, that would yield uh, two FTEs. So you'd probably want to go with the, the 40 hour um, equivalent. Agreed, Stacey. Anytime, generally, anytime you're uh, you have a preponderance of employees under 20 hours a week, you're going to use that 0.5? Um, not necessarily, because you need to apply the definition of FTE both to the reference period in the past, where you want a lower FTE count, but you're also going to apply the same definition to the eight-week period, where you want a higher FTE count. So, um, it it will vary on which definition of part-time FTE you end up using, whether it's the actual number of hours divided by 40 or whether you're using 0.5 for everyone. It's going to, you know, it, it, in some cases, it will yield a, a more um, 
generous calculation one way or the other. Agreed, but if you, it, it, gen, generally the presumption is you have less hours for them during the eight weeks. And, and if, and in, in that case, you, yeah. you, you, well, yeah, I agree. You should, you should work through both formulas. Yeah. But that's, um, that, that may be an example of when the, when the alternate calculation works. How far yeah. ahead can you pre prepay rent? <laughs> um, well, the application doesn't put any limitations on it, but like everything else with this law, we always hesitate when something just feels a little bit like pushing the limits, even if there's no explicit, um, you know, uh, prohibition on it. Um, so that, that's my guidepost for that. Okay, and then Darren, let's. Why don't we end the session on our favorite question asked by Roberta? I know a business that took a PPP loan, but is not using it for payroll since no one wants to work since it would take away their big unemployment checks. Therefore, the company will just take that as a loan. Is that totally okay? Uh, it's 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 not clear that that you can use that money later as a loan. You, you certified to that you needed that money to maintain payroll and it might, if, if you can't make, if, use any of the money for payroll costs under those circumstances, it might be best just to give the money back. Yeah, the certification that gives us pause on that is in the application um, and it's the certification that talks about using the money uh, to retain workers and maintain payroll. I mean, the other, the other thing about this is there's discussions right now about changing the law in a manner that allows uh, the borrowers to, to do things like this, like longer periods of time to use the money for broader uses, broader forgiveness, et cetera. But the fact that Congress is debating changing the law to, to do that, to me, suggests that that the current law is more restrictive than that. So, um, you know, I, I would say tread carefully. I actually, um, rather than ending Jeff, this top question yeah. is a really good, is a really good question. Yeah. Sean's um, question. Yeah. Sean's yeah. question, which is, okay. So you have, uh, an FTE, uh, reduction, but you fill it with someone else. And so does that new person step into the shoes of the other, uh, of the person who, who quit um, for the purpose of the FTE calculation? Uh, let me take a stab at this first and, and you guys uh, can, can fill in. Um, I tend to think the answer is no, because the way the application form is set up, it asks for the employee's name um and you know and and your replacement is a different person but actually now that i'm talking it through the the exception that allows you to exclude someone who quit only applies if the person was not replaced and so since you have a replacement then actually now that i'm talking through it i think you would probably put down both the person who left and the new person down. Yeah. Uh, this is an off the cuff 
brainstorm, by the way. Um, so, you you yeah, don't, Stacey. You don't, you don't get the exception if you replace the the employee that that quit. And so, the, the I think Sean has it right. You you put the new hire into the FTA calculation, and and you you need to use that new hire on the salary analysis as well. The interesting thing also then becomes what is a replacement or, or, you know, so uh, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there, I guess. Um, so uh, Stacy, Jeff, uh, I, I get the impression Jeff is ready to close it down. So no, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to chat. I, we've just, we've just gone from questions that had 20 votes down to questions that had one or so, but let's do a few more minutes and then we can, yeah. we can close it off. There's, there's 775 people and another hundred, um, streaming. Agreed. So, Agreed. um, uh, in terms of, uh, well, let's, let's take this top one. Um, family business, most family owners working in the business. Now it looks like we cannot be forgiven for our, all of our family owner members all own less than 20%. I, I mean, I think for, again, for owners, it depends on what the compensation levels are in 2019 and whether they're going to exceed the, exceed the maximums or not. Um, and, and that's what gets counted for owners. It's, it's going to be typically uh, net uh, net profit or what the owner was was paid in terms of net profit in the 2019 or currently whichever one is lower. Uh, Stacy. Next one. If you have one FTE and brought the FTE back to work in the third week of eight weeks, how does that affect loan forgiveness? Um, it, it shouldn't as long as you keep that employee on through June 30th. Um, let me amend that slightly. So uh, if you have that FTE as of June 30th, and that was the FTE count as of February 15th, not, not the start of your loan, but February 15th, the, and the, the time period in which that uh, FTE went away was between February 15th and um, April 26th then the safe harbor would apply and there would be no FTE reduction. Otherwise, the um, FTE reduction um, would be, again, apply the, the which of the two reference periods is the better one, first two months of this year or that February to June of last year, and then um, look at what the FTE would be during the eight weeks and if it's lower during the eight weeks, then you're going to have a reduction. Um, Stacy, you want to take the next one? Are all owners excluded from the FTE computations? Is this 10, 20% um, percent owners or not? Uh, yes. So the question is, yes, all owners, uh, all owner employees are do not practice. Yeah, so the, so the application form explicitly breaks owners out um, from, from payroll costs. It, it has them as a completely separate category. So if you, 
take a look. Uh, is it on the, is it on schedule A? Okay, on page six of the application. Yeah, uh, yeah, page six, go ahead. Yeah, the only place that the owner shows up is on line nine, and you can see that there is no uh, FTE calculation associated with that, or whereas there is a FTE, um, you have to report FTE of all your employees only um, from, you know, on line two, and then line five again for your employees making over 100,000. Um. Uh, so, okay, so I, I think we're starting to repeat some questions now. So I, there was one that popped up at the beginning um, that was, uh, when do you have to apply for forgiveness? Um, and I think that uh, there's nothing in the statute that talks about it, but the application form itself says it expires on October 31st of 2020. Um, the statute says the bank has 60 days after your loan forgiveness application to, you know, rule on it. Um, but it appears that the deadline to apply for forgiveness currently would be the expiration of the application form. And, and you start paying interest on your loan six months after. So there's a, there's a incentive to, uh, get the loan forgiven before, know, know how much of the loan is going to be forgiven before you have to start paying back interest. Yeah, so, so, so the interest so accrues from the start of the loan, but the first payment is after six months. Yeah, but it, it's, so, so it, it, it's good for you to get the application in as soon as possible so you don't have to start making those back interest payments pending determination of your forgiveness application because it's 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 not clear that those those loan payments are deferred pending your forgiveness application yeah okay um jeff stacy any closing words i i, I just say I, I think we can expect to have a few more of these because there are a lot of things on that application that need clarification. Yeah, and, I guess. Uh, oh, go ahead, Stacy. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of uh, things that not only on the application, but there's a lot of other things that um, haven't been addressed as well. So we look forward to more guidance from the SBA. Yeah, I mean, this was an hour and a half of of a more than a mouthful to digest, and so. I guess the practical pointer I would leave you with is I, I think that the forgiveness memo that we just updated over the weekend um, puts it in a good framework for you to think about um, how the, the rules interact and work. And again, that, that memo is arranged as, hey, what are the, the payroll costs, non-payroll costs that, um, that are uh, applicable for forgiveness and then am I knocking them down because of either this 75-25 rule FTE reduction or uh, individual salary reduction and with that framework in mind the, that memo goes into deep detail on each of those items as to how they work that that will give you I think a a clearer uh, picture that you can look at on paper of how the mechanics work and then once you then go into 
the actual application form, then you can sort of start to see how those rules uh, apply themselves because the application form reads like an IRS document, like fill this line and then go to this line. And if this one multiply line two by line three. So, I mean, you could do it in rote fashion and just fill it out. But if you're really trying to understand what the application form is doing in terms of applying the rules, um, then I, I would say the forgiveness memo does that. And um, just, just one other clarification. We need to give the SBA credit for finally clarifying what FTE equivalent means. And, and with that FTE equivalent clarification, I think you're going to be able to do a lot more planning. You, you, yeah. You, you're going to be able to rough out uh, what what you can do over the remaining weeks with that clarification. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's right. So thank you for sticking with us for an hour and a half. Um, on behalf of Jeff and Stacy and Evan, Buddy and Coco, um, uh, thanks for sticking with us and. We will, uh, as more guidance comes out, we'll, we'll push that information out uh, to you folks. And then again, for those on Oahu, those truly small little businesses, uh, less than a million dollars of gross revenue and uh, 30 or less employees with a physical presence, then definitely check out the city and county uh, $10,000 grants. Uh, and we will see you folks all again sometime soon. Thanks so much.